Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Audrey Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. At 40 Strategy, we help provide strategic planning consulting to help organizations realize and achieve their dreams. Mark, basically, we help companies and organizations create strategic plans and measure the right KPIs for success. Unfortunately, most organizations only spend about 2% of their time or about the equivalent of 40 team hours per year building an effective strategy. And I think, I don't know about you, Mark, but I think that's pretty crazy. And and so with that, at 40 Strategy, your success is our passion. That's why organizations call on us to help. Not only do we come up with strategy, but we facilitate your teams with proven practices. Harvard research shows when you actually focus on the right key performance indicators, you can triple your success. And who wouldn't want that? So email us today at catch at 40strategy.com or you could learn more at 40strategy.com. Now, we normally have a shout out in this segment, and it's going to be a little bit different than normal. Before introducing today's guest, I'd like to have a big thank you to my wife, Sarah, who's been incredible in helping this entrepreneurial success and help drive me to the things of, of the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial roller coaster. And so thank you for that. I also like to thank her cousin, Marion. And without Marion, who lives in New York City, who is now married to our guest, Mr. Mark Howard, we would never have this connection. And that's how we have gotten to know each other over the years. And it's always been in a family type relationship. This is going to be fun. We're going to combine business and, and personal today. So thank you to Sarah and Marion. And Mark Howard is the Chartered Financial Analyst or CFA, Managing Director and Senior Asset Specialist at BNP Paribas. He promotes the bank's fundamental analysis, qualitative and quantitative models, and differentiated insights for key clients. He also connects institutional clients with BNP researchers, product experts, and traders to showcase their expertise. He also leads a new initiative to coordinate global markets, client engagement, and Americas related to sustainable finance. Previously, Mark has been managing director and co-head of global research and head of credit analyst at Barclays Capital for a period of five years. And for 18 years, Mark was with Lehman Brothers, where he was also managing director and global credit strategist. He was responsible for the firm's high-grade yield, emerging market, and credit derivative strategy teams. Mark, it says a bit like the Tom Brady or LeBron James of fixed analysts. Uh, he's been uh, rated an institutional investor as an All-American 11 times, and seven of those times he's actually been rated first place. He he's earned his rights, um, and he learned has education from the MBA in finance from New York University, and he, which he still lives in New York City today. He has a bachelor's degree from Colby College. He also has a lot of charitable work and efforts that he does. He serves on the board and investment committees for the Maine Community Foundation and is a director and past president of the Fixed Income Analyst Society. He's also a director of the Friends of IAGS in France, and he also previously chartered, chaired the University College, College of London's Friends and Family Alumni Association Board and was an overseer of the Board of Trustees from Colby College from 2009 to 2015. And with all that, Mark, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Thank you, Carl. It's a privilege, and thank you to 40 Strategy for having me today. I'm, I'm looking forward to our discussion. Absolutely. So let, let's start with this a little bit. To, to help, we rattled off a bunch of details about it. Tell me a little bit more about uh, you and, and what what is your day-to-day organization and business look like and how are you really making a difference in your life? 
So in a in a pre-pandemic environment, Carl, I would sit on a trading desk uh, where billions of dollars of, of transactions are happening all around me. Uh, and I, as you aptly described in my biography, I work with our clients. I you know an investment bank, we serve as middlemen between corporate clients and institutional clients who buy and sell securities all day long. And um, I have the privilege of working with some of the world's largest institutional investors, helping them think about their asset allocations around the world uh, in all different types of investments. And I work closely with the different experts within our bank, as well as outside resources, uh, to deliver kind of value-added insight to those, um, those clients who make you know, very big, important decisions with our retirement funds, our mutual funds. So on and so forth. So it's a lot of fun, but my normal day is um, is very active, very um, you know very aggressive in terms of the amount of activity going on. But it's uh, it's a ton of fun. That's amazing. And so I'm curious now how you now in this COVID world you've been uh, probably a year you've not been in the office. So how you've been able to conduct all that business and in a remote setting. You know, it's um, it's an interesting uh, turn of events. I've, uh, I've I've had the I don't know what want to call it good fortune, but the fortune to have had to work remotely uh, after 9/11, after Hurricane Sandy, uh, and even an event about two years ago in my building in New York where a helicopter landed on the roof and uh, there was a fire and unfortunately a death, and um, but the building had to be evacuated, uh, and so. And we, we couldn't work there for a while. So uh, our business uh, has spent very aggressively on, uh, on backup and on resiliency uh, in order to deal with this. And uh, it has never been put to a bigger test than, than this past year. But it has been surprisingly seamless. Um, you know, we have redundancy. We've got, you know, remote access. And, you know, with web accessibility on so many different types of resources, uh, we're, we're able to kind of toggle uh, our technology fairly quickly. There are compliance issues, there are regulatory issues that we had to either get waivers or patches to deal with it. But in terms of operational capability, uh, it was surprisingly seamless. Wow. And so are you regularly meeting with your teams on Zoom or some other type of teams or something like that on a regular basis to stay connected and, and being on top of their research and their a- analysts that they're doing as well? Yeah, there are a number of communications platforms that we use. Um, it, you know, we used to laugh about it because we called it communications overload before the pandemic, but um, we now realize that it's actually critical to have multiple abilities to not just to, to see and speak with people, but also to share data, to share uh, news and insight, to, um, to connect in other ways. So yeah, Bloomberg, for example, the Bloomberg Terminal is a very powerful uh, resource that in my business, almost everybody uses. And there are IB chat functions. There are uh, obviously different streaming functions. And then there are other platforms like Symphony uh, and uh, WebEx and Zoom and so on, you know, Meet Me, uh, Microsoft Office. So uh, we use all of them. And it's so important um, to maintain that connectivity. In fact, we're laughing the other day how everybody wants to get back to the office, obviously. But one of the reasons is they're tired of using Zoom. They're tired of, you know, leaning on technology so much. They want to get back to, you know, actually having a cup of coffee with somebody or, or sitting in an office and talking things over. So it's, um, 
it, it's it's fascinating, but you know, at least in our business, it's been surprisingly seamless. And um, we're lucky because we are a, a people business. And so we've been able to just pivot. Um, you know, other service businesses and certainly manufacturing businesses that found it more difficult. So that's, I don't know for you, for me, I, 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 same thing. I, I pivoted. I've been using Zoom for years and other type of technologies. And, and so for me, in, in a weird way, when people move to Zoom, it was a little bit of a blessing because it was like, oh, wow, everyone else also knows how to use these tools. Because I, I couldn't communicate with them regularly. I was like pulling teeth to actually get them to turn on the webcam, as an example, right? Now, just expect things that we normally do. But I've also found I don't get a little bit in depth. There's, there's the soft part of communication. And, and there's that time in between meetings where you actually gain additional insights that you're not going to pick up on a, on a recorded Zoom, as an example. That's what I found is the gap. Have you found something similar or that element of where, you know, how, how do you overcome that challenge and obstacle of just communication? And, and when you're in a position of trust and you're, and you're working with people on, on that, you said the amount of money you've talked about, how do you help get those extra things so it breaks that trust in this you know, telecom video uh, perspective that we have. Well, you bring up a great point, Carl, and I haven't given it a tremendous amount of thought, but particularly for younger people that don't have pre-existing relationships that they can rely on and 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 build upon, uh, it is very problematic. And I actually think there's a broader issue, which are children uh, who have grown up using devices and FaceTiming and, and, and perhaps not developing the interpersonal connectivity that you just described. Um, you know, as they become even more reliant on screen time, they may miss out on certain things. But what I've found, similar to you, less about the, the uh, you know, the time in the elevator, uh, for example, is actually time on the phone. I don't spend as much time on the phone with people as I used to. And um, you're exactly right. There, there's that, uh, you know, that period at the beginning of the call, the end of the call, you ask how somebody's kids are doing or, you know, how their health is or these other um, you know, seemingly innocuous things, but they create connective tissue that can be built upon. And, and frankly, is very important to the experience of doing business. And that is lacking. So let me let me change this a little bit of, of the part of that you do. There, there's the quote unquote, the sexy part of the stock market and, you know, all the things that people typically see in the headlines every day. You know, it's, it's the... Um, uh, GameStop, right? You know, these are things that people talk about and, and, and gets us. But the part that you work in in fixed income, I think you told me beforehand, is significantly larger in terms of dollars, in terms of the stock market. Can you give the listeners some perspective of how much larger in general perspective it is and 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 how much more money you're, you're, you're dealing with compared to the thing that we, we typically see in the day-to-day -day headlines? Yeah, it, it's a bit of a moving target, Carl, because, uh, you know, the stock market, stock market um, has a lot more movement. It's a lot generally more volatile. And uh, as you know, last year was a pretty gangbusters year with all the, the stimulus that was provided. Um, but the, the bond markets have grown. And, and historically, the bond market has been roughly three times the size of the stock market globally. Uh, but that depends on where interest rates are because the value of the bond market moves in relation to interest rates, but also where the stock market is. So if the stock market's up 30%, then that gap narrows quite a bit. But uh, you know, with a $1.9 trillion uh, fiscal package that just came and perhaps another several trillion dollars of infrastructure that may come, 
you know, the debt market is going to keep growing. <laughs> and it's not just here, it's around the world because the economic scars from this pandemic are potentially very deep. And most um, authorities, both fiscal and monetary, want to limit those scars. And so they're going to throw money at it. Uh, and it's not just in the developed world, it's also in the developing world. So the bond markets are going to stay big, but they're generally more boring than the stock market. So that's the trade-off. It's bigger, but it's less volatile in general. There are certainly parts of the bond market, like emerging markets and high yield and some esoteric parts that are quite uh, jazzy, but uh, by and large, not as dynamic or volatile as the equity market. And there's way less people. Work. Is it fair to say there's way less people working in it, too? I mean, comparatively, or is it about the same? I, this is something I don't know at all. I'm kind of curious from your perspective. Yeah, there, there are fewer people. Um, because because bonds trade at a, at a notional value that allows you to move you know tens of thousands or or millions of them, whereas equities, particularly individual investors, move in clips of a hundred or a thousand dollars, much smaller clips. So uh, you're right. You can you can trade um, you know the the bond market with a lot fewer people. It's also become a lot more electronified. Uh, and then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, the bond market is more of an institutional market, uh, whereas the equity market is, is a balance between institutional and individual. And so you need more people to support the retail investor than you do to support the institutional investor. At the beginning, when we were preparing for this call, I asked you a question about what's top of mind. Want to share with me what you talked about? I think it's, it's really interesting insights. Well, it's changed since we talked earlier, Carl. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot on. It. Uh, I'm hungry now. That's what's front of mind. Uh, the the truth of the matter, we're we're in a very interesting time, and I've I've had the benefit of working in the markets for almost 35 years. So I've seen a bunch of things come and go, and and narratives, uh, you know, become prevalent and and then fade. Uh, we're in a very interesting time now, and in particular. Uh, there, there are a lot of economic and social forces combining with economic forces on the back end of this pandemic that are, um, that, that are creating some important pivots uh, and, and shifts on the part of our elected officials, both in the state and the federal level. Um, but businesses are, are being forced to adapt and change, not just because of what's coming out of Washington, but because of demands of shareholders uh, or boards of directors. And, and then society and, and being a parent, having a couple of teenage uh, age kids, uh, the things that they're seeing and the things that they're passionate about. So th these, these social, economic, um, and environmental factors that are all shifting uh, are not all shifting in tandem. And they don't have the same impact on me personally as I do professionally or what I do outside of work. So uh, I'm, I'm, um, I'm really toggling and adapting uh, to all of those, and while trying to be consistent, uh, both conceptually but also in my actions, so that's that's challenging in a, in a good way, uh, but it requires a lot of thinking, learning about the climate issues, trying to figure out what's fact and what's fiction, trying to rethink uh, some of the things around society and and social issues that um, you know are not all that comfortable, but um, I'm trying to relearn and rethink them, and then adapting to whatever the new normal is in this economy post the pandemic. Um, is is challenging both personally and professionally. So that's uh, that occupies a lot of space uh, in my head these days. And well said. I, I think it, it is incredible. I think you mentioned of 
the, the changes that are happening with with very very real right from you said from the top you know in Washington happens at a local level but then it is at a different rate you know everybody is experiencing things at different elements I think that's really interesting insights you know there's a lot of stuff and this is a tough question to ask but let's assume there's nothing other major again happening uh, for the next few years how how long do you think it's going to take or will it quote unquote settle down? You know, where there's going to be something where, where it feels, quote unquote, the new normal. Yeah, you know, Carl, I'm, I'm not a, a crystal ball person. I can talk about the economy. I can talk about markets. Uh, you know, when you get into social issues and medical uh, environmental issues, I'm outside my realm. But I do think that we're in a period of adaptation that's going to feel uncomfortable um, for, for a while. And hopefully, um, we don't see the same type of wildfires and, um, you know, incredible snowstorms in Texas and other kind of natural disasters that that force us to continually change um, due to what many call climate change. Um, you know, if, if those things settle down, then great. But if we continue to see these high impact events around the world, then that's going to create a whole set of demands for um reaction by policymakers and by uh, by corporations that you know could could be very you know challenging so uh, and create the need to tax businesses and consumers and and taxpayers in a different way so it, it I don't want to get too deep down that rabbit hole but it's um, it's a complicated time and I think it's going to stay complicated <laughs> it's the bottom yeah, line. yeah. That, I think that, you know, I think that is is actually probably refreshing to hear, even though people may not want to hear it, right, is that don't expect calm, right? Expect to have continued turbulence and, and trying to deal with those uncharted waters and navigate through it, I think, is, is really the key element of success through this, right? But waiting for, quote unquote, this belief of I wanted to be back in 1995 again or whatever, whatever time period that was for any human where they're like, oh, this is when time was great. It's we're not going back to it. And it, it, and we have some incredible things. So you have this incredible uh, experiences of living in New York City where you have, I mean, there's more than what I'm going to state here, but there's, there's four key ones. You actually added one, but you were with, not, you were present when 9-11 took place in, in New York City. Um, there was the 2008 recession. You mentioned the hurricane uh, that had hit New York City. And then also, of course, COVID, the pandemic. For you, let, let's maybe hit on the business side first and then go to the personal side. From the business perspective, what was the most impactful of those four events? Oh, you know, it's, um, it's hard because you're at different levels of your career and different sets of responsibilities uh, in each of them. So it's a, I think they, they all had uh, you know, profound effect on on business and on people. I think uh, 9/11 was probably the most traumatic because um, it, it really was a fundamental reset of the global world order and um, and, and a reset of, um, of of many issues, not just uh, geopolitical but also economic and and then the physical and emotional of New York. I mean, it was just Incredibly traumatic, um, working and living in Lower Manhattan uh, for for a prolonged period, you know, and and the memorials all around this great city uh, was 
was striking. And, and what was so profound about that and Superstorm Sandy is that it was it was really quite finite. I mean, there was, of course, um, you know, planes that hit in Washington and in Pennsylvania, but but the you know, you, you could travel as we did to Oregon or other places, and it, and it just wasn't the same feeling. Whereas with the pandemic, it was national, right? And, and even those who, who didn't get it in March of 2020, they ended up getting it in August or September, and you know, it became a truly national phenomenon. Whereas whereas the uh, 9/11 event just was really narrowly focused and and really traumatic for those who lived through it, and those of us who had children, who we had to uh, you know be brave for them and, and figure out what this meant for them. Do we want to move? Do we want to leave? And, and what does this mean for our careers? So I think that was probably the most profound. Um, but all of them, um, you know, I, I want to go back to our prior comment, Carl, which was, you know, I don't think we're all that different from our parents or our grandparents. They've also lived through really challenging and uncertain times. You know, whether it's the 60s and the early 70s with Vietnam, whether it's World War II, where my father served, or or earlier than that, um, Great Recession. You know, it's it's part of the human condition, and perhaps we've had a an easier go of it in certain ways. Um, but what we've also, I think, proven over the last 12, 18 months is we're also very resilient. Uh, and if we need to, you know, if we need to eat baked beans out of a can, we can do it. And uh, you know, if you need to build a fire to stay warm, you can do it. And so I, I think we're, um, you know, we're not that different from our predecessors. And when pushed to the to the limits, we we rise to the occasion. That's a great insight, and and I appreciate too how each of them respectively had its own impact on you personally and nationally, and, and different levels behind it. Uh, I, I going, I remember when I came to visit you, and uh, afterwards hit the nine eleven memorial. It's just Still, I, I wasn't even there, but but there is something more unique when you were there, there, you know, and, and you, you, if I'm correct, right, there was the smoke, you, it was, you were, you were blocks not far away from the event when it took place, correct? Mm-hmm. In 9-11, I'm referring to specifically there. Right. And, yeah. and there's, there's something about that being personally there versus being 3,000 miles away, right? And, and, and so, uh, anyways, thank you for sharing that. I, I think it's, incredible those things and, and the different levels and impact that it's had. So l- let's flip to the other side, which is the success side, right? Um, how do you, let, let's talk about this on, on a, maybe perhaps a business level first. There, there's going to be challenges and trying times. And I, I'm not looking for secret sauce, so to speak, but I'm looking from more of a general perspective. How do you measure success when you're working with institutional investors and, and, and your larger clients how how do you keep that connection with them so they're making the right decisions and and you feel like you're moving your organization to the right place? Right. Well, I think uh, you gave a shout out to my wife Marion earlier, and I'm going to give her a second shout out because she she uh, has has taught me uh, an axiom that I think is very applicable, which is that is you know what is measured matters, and I think what you and 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 40 strategy does around KPIs is critically important. And that's what I use to measure success. Uh, we, we as, a, as a French firm with a very strong quantitative backbone, we have metrics for almost everything uh, that we do, as well as metrics for the things we don't do. Uh, and so we're very uh, fastidious in terms of tracking 
client inquiry and uh, client outreach and uh, duration of client connectivity. And uh, when we have a conference call or we have a, a conference of some sort. Uh, but there are obviously more tangible things, whether it's revenues or profitability or um, uh, you know, hit rates on things. There are a lot of different metrics, but there's no substitute for, for you know, empirical metrics in my mind. And I think it's, it's not easy. Uh, sometimes it's a little, um, it can be embarrassing to uh, create the data capture that then exposes where you're not succeeding as much as you'd like to, but it's critically important to improve it. And, uh, you know, you can't really look in the mirror if you're not measuring what you're supposed to be doing. So I think KPR, KPIs are a very simple part of it. We also, um, we, we do use intangibles because I think uh, in a service business, sometimes there are intangibles that matter. Our clients aren't always going in the same direction that we're going, right? We, we have big clients who may be very important, but they're seeing outflows in their portfolios, so they can't trade with us at that point in time. And so it doesn't mean I'm failing if they're not trading with us. It means that they're not available. So there are other things that we do in periods where they may not be active or uh, our offering isn't necessarily aligned with their their demand, and so um, you know that that's where you the human touch comes in and making a phone call, asking about their kids, playing around the golf. You know, there are a lot of different things you can do, um, and and in particular, what I like to do is go beyond the obvious and understand our, our key clients. What are some of their outside interests, and showing interest in their outside interests that creates a level of of connectivity that I don't think my competitors do. So please don't tell them. About <laughs> uh, I, I loved it how you brought Marion Measure What Matters, one of the books that's sitting back here by John Doerr. I think it is is true. You know, once you once you measure these key elements of things, but you, you were mentioning elements of how to win friends and influence people along the way there too. You know, when when you when you do care and, and spend that extra time of caring about who you're with, who you're connected with, um, they'll care more in return about what you're doing. And and it's that's not why you do it, but they just do, right? Because of, of your so I appreciate you sharing that. I think it's something that especially in in the virtual world, trying to make efforts to do that and create those connections is so incredibly important. So you are, I remember, of course, it's been a kind of a non-travel period right now, but at some point it's gonna kick back up again. You you've had to travel around the world and, and meet with clients and at, at a local level. How do you, on a personal level, keep up your energy so you're passionate about what you're doing on a, on a regular and day-to-day -day basis? So I was really fortunate in my initial, actually my second employer, uh, to participate in a in a uh, initiative called the Energy Project, run by a guy by the name of Tony Schwartz, uh, and I learned an awful lot from Tony uh, and his colleagues at the Energy Project, and. Um, I learned that that you know my brain and my body are kind of a finite resource, and that I, I need to uh, I need to focus on my energy. And there are different things that I can do to maximize my energy. Um, and you know, as silly as it sounds, sleeping is one of them. So I, I actually am pretty pretty careful about making sure I, I get the right amount of sleep to maintain my energy. I also need exercise. I'm not in as good shape as you are, but I I. Do uh, I do like to get a lot of exercise, and I like to do diverse exercise, uh, you know, a variety of things, because that helps to keep my brain and my body in sync. Um, and and laughter and fun uh, are, are critical to me 
to having the balance uh, to think clearly. And so um, I, I try to, to mix it up, but, but maximizing my energy, if I think about it from an energy standpoint and, and the things that drive energy, having a good diet, having the right amount of exercise, getting good sleep, um, and, and also you know, incorporating laughter into my routine, whether it's watching a TV show or going to a comedy club or, or whatever, watching silly things on YouTube, um, is a good way of, of clearing my head. Then the other thing that I would say, as you said about keeping it up, is being really careful about distraction. Um, at, at work, my colleagues have four or five monitors in front of them. I only have two. I intentionally don't like having a lot of screens open because my, the way your brain works, and I learned this from Tony, is it goes up and down, up and down. Every time you switch from my email to my Bloomberg to my cell phone, back to my email to a phone call, so, you know, you, you got to think about brain efficiency and uh, distractions are, are really problematic. Going and doing email four times an hour is not very efficient. So I try to be thoughtful about that. I'm not always, you know, I'm not always perfect. I, I do eat donuts from time to time, um, and uh, but I try. I, I love the last part. I mean, first of all, that's great. really interesting. You actually got specifically trained on this from energy. I and mean, that's not a common response that I hear. But I, I thought it was uh, the distraction part is really interesting. And, and what has happened with, with our devices that we have today, um, I'm, I'm actually taking a course from Darren Hardy, the compound effect right now. And I, and I have a, somebody else I'm, I'm working well as well on this. And it is uh, Marty, by the way, who's, who's uh, we're, we're <laughs> helping each other out on, on being accountable. One of the things I've done on my own phone is I've actually deleted LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram uh, off my phone. And it's amazing how much less I go to it now. The other thing I've even done is I've taken it. So my, my text message, which doesn't make everybody in my family happy. I only get them. And when I click on it, it's amazing how much less distracted I am and how much more focused I could be in doing what I'm supposed to be doing on, on, especially during the day. And, but even when trying to be present at home, which course, my wife would probably argue, I'm, you know, whether our person I am or not, that's a different question. But I, I love that distraction element and trying to get rid of them is so important on that. So let's, Mark, I want to, I would love to keep chatting and talking. We're, we're at the end of our time here. Uh, thank you so much. It's been great insights. I'm so much looking forward to, we get back to our family reunions again, uh, of connecting when, when, um, the pandemic elements have gone by and the risk and concerns have been removed. But one of the things I like to ask all our audience members is what is some books that you could recommend to our audience, whether that be audiobooks or physical books or and or or something recent or long term that you'd recommend for our audience? Yeah, I um I think that's a neat question. I'm gonna share um something that's fairly new. It's called Accountable, the rise of citizen capitalism that I brought. And the authors are Michael Leary and Warren Baldmanis. Um, and they're a couple of really thoughtful people who um, have, have recognized, and I think um, many others have done the same, uh, some of the limitations of uh, capitalism as we know it and, um, and, and, and the intersection with how our democracy has evolved. And um, I haven't read the whole book, so I can't. I can't give it the, my full-throated recommendation, but I'm really enjoying it so far. And um, 
it, it, to me, it's, it's thoughtful booking and it's, it's uh, written by really smart people who understand the business world, um, but also are trying to make the business world a little more adaptable and, uh, and responsible. That's good. I have not heard that one. Thank you so much for that. That's something I will pick up based on your recommendation there. So, Mark, thank you so much once again for being on this. We, we've been talking with Mark Howard. And where can people learn more about you? Well, feel free to, to uh, watch me on YouTube or Bloomberg TV. I, I'm usually doing market-related commentary there uh, once a month or so. Um, but also, uh, feel free to send me an email at the uh, the address mmjm2 uh, at gmail.com. All right, Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to the Measure Success podcast, and we're wishing all of you the very best at measuring your success. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes. You've always had what it takes to make it happen, and we know the right tools can make it easier. At Strayer University, we're always thinking about new ways to set you up for success. That's why we give you a brand new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program so you can start off on the right foot and keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef.